Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you because you are so good to us. And as we just think that you saved us, that you love us, that you care for us. And even in times that we don't understand, we do understand that your plan has not ceased. And you're working something in us. We're going to learn some of that today. But we do pray as we do every week. Because you, Lord, you're the North Star. You're the one we navigate our life by. And I pray that as we're reminded through your inerrant truth of your word, that as we're reminded of your plan, we'd rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you know, I have a little grandson who's about seven weeks old, and I can't wait for my grandson to come of age where he starts, oh, look, Isn't that magic how that just happens to have a picture up there? This is him just a couple days ago. That's your grandbaby, Lenny Mae. That's your great-grandchildren. But um, I can't wait till he gets to the age where he can ask questions. You know how kids ask questions that are tough to answer? I can't wait for that. I'm so excited for all of those crazy, wonderful questions to be asked. Great conversations are coming. You know that I love questions that children ask God, and I've shared some before, but I found a few more. One child says, Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but why? What I prayed for was a puppy. That's honest. Dear God, the Bible says you gave us everything or give us everything we ask for, so then why don't we have everything? I think a little boy wrote that. Dear God, could you put another holiday between Christmas and Easter? There's nothing good there right now. I like this one. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in the church. Is that okay? And finally this one. Dear God, my brothers told me about being born, but it didn't sound right. They are just kidding, aren't they? I suspect we all have a few questions we'd like to ask God. And I suspect those questions would fall along the lines of, why is there so much pain and suffering and evil and disease and war in this world? George Barna helps us. He polled the American public and said, if you could ask God any question, and you knew that God would give you an answer, what would you ask Him? The large majority of people said those questions. I'd ask Him about pain and suffering and hardship. There is pain. There is suffering. There are diseases. In fact, there are so many diseases now, doctors cannot even keep up with them. They're telling us that what's coming down the pike are diseases that they have no treatment for, no way to handle I discovered this week something shocking. HIV AIDS is now the number one killer of people worldwide between the age of 25 and 44. That's shocking. 
I stand before you this morning not as somebody who has all the answers. I've got questions myself. I stand before you as your pastor, but as a fellow sufferer. I've had my share of loss, people that I love dearly who have passed away. I've had my share of accusations and misunderstanding. And yet, though I don't understand them, I do believe that God has a plan. You know, it might be said that we're either suffering today or we're between episodes of suffering. I hold my little grandson and I I look at him and I got to tell you, he brings me such joy when he does absolutely nothing. He didn't have to do anything at all. He's just there. It's like, wow. But I know he's going to grow up. And I know he's going to bring lots of more love and lots of more joy and experience all sorts of wonderful, fun times. But I also look at that little child and I recognize that he'll have his share of pain that will scar his life and suffering and tragedy. It's all a part of being human. Um, John chapter 9, the first 12 verses, is about a healing. Five times the New Testament records that Jesus healed the blind. And what a wonderful and miraculous story this is. This man we discover is blind from birth. I read an article this week about this bionic implant they have actually come up with that will hook to, the electrodes hook to nerves in the brain, sending impulses, enabling somebody blind to somewhat see. And as wonderful as that is, and we welcome all that technology, that can't hold a candle to real, miraculous healing like this. Once again, Jesus Christ shows what John said he is throughout the book, the God of very gods, able to heal even those who are blind. But this morning in our section of John 9, there's four realities about suffering that I want you to notice with me. Number one, suffering always provokes questions. We find it here. Verse 1, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now let's get the setting. If you remember, Jesus has been in the temple, right? And he had quite a verbal confrontation with that crowd. And they picked up stones as if to kill him. And the previous verse says, Jesus passed through the crowd and went his way. So he's leaving that scene. He's with his disciples. We don't know where they are. Somewhere in Jerusalem, one of the many corridors that is in that city. And he sees a blind man. And the disciples, following suit, seeing the blind man, ask questions. Because suffering provokes questions. Why is this man suffering? Where did this come from? Why is there evil in the world? Now, we don't know why he was blind. There are all sorts of reasons that people... We're blind. And by the way, you should know that 2,000 years ago, blindness was very common. It was a very common occurrence to see people who were blind lining the streets, at the gates, etc. For a number of reasons, unsanitary conditions was one of them. Poverty was another. Bright, bright 
unfiltered sunlight like we have here, but they didn't have sunglasses back then. And finally, blowing dust and sand. All of those factors contributed to blindness. But there's something I want you to notice that may be the reason for this man's blindness. Notice that Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. See those two words, from birth? In the original language, it's ek genetes. Literally, out from birth. Or it could be translated, on the occasion of, or by reason of, or out of the birth itself. Let me explain. One of the most common reasons that people were blind 2,000 years ago was a condition prevalent then, and still very prevalent in parts of Africa and other parts of the world, called ophthalmia neonatorum a.k.a. gonorrhea of the eyes. The bacterium lodged within the birth canal of the woman, unbeknownst to her, and when the baby was born, that bacterium settled in the eyelids, the conjunctiva of the eye, the mucous membrane that lines the eye. And within two or three days, that baby began to form pus pockets around the eye, and within a week or two, the baby was totally blind. And so because this man was born out of or blind out of the birth, it could be that the birth itself, that ophthalmia neonatorum was the cause of this blindness. We don't know exactly. What we do know is that if you were blind, you were consigned to a miserable existence 2,000 years ago. Because they didn't have welfare system to take care of it, very few families would take care of somebody who was blind throughout their life, and typically the person would be consigned to a life of begging And so no doubt this person was a beggar. Hand was out or there was some apparatus to collect coins living off the benevolence of those who would pass by. Jesus sees a blind man. They, the disciples, ask the question. Suffering provokes questions. Human suffering, I'll say it, is the number one roadblock for many people when it comes to faith with God or faith in God. Number one roadblock. It stimulates the most questions. How can a loving God who's all-powerful and all-knowing allow evil to exist? Everyone struggles with it. Everyone struggles with it. Everyone. Philip Yancey writes honestly, If you pinned them against the wall in a dark, secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was God's one mistake. He really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's greatest dangers. What makes it worse for us is when we see what we would perceive as innocent people who are suffering. You know, it would be one thing if all the bad guys got sick. And if all the villains and murderers and thieves, they got cancer and they got broken bones and they got Parkinson's disease. But when you see people who are innocent victims or who are good people and they're suffering so intensely. Well, it was what put Asaph almost over the edge. If you remember a few weeks ago in Psalm 73, Asaph looked at it and said, My feet nearly slipped. My steps almost stumbled. When I saw that, it almost, I almost cashed it in when it comes to following and believing in God. Suffering provokes questions. Second thing I want you to see. Suffering defies 
explanations. Now, watch the disciples try to explain this man's malady. His disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a weird question. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. The explanation of these disciples is a typical explanation, especially back then. It's the sin explanation. Somebody had to see, and all the rabbis then taught that there was a direct connect between suffering and sin. Somebody had to sin for this to happen. But here's my question. How do you sin and get born blind? Isn't that a weird question? Who sinned? Was this this guy or his parents that he was born blind? Do you know that the Jews 2,000 years ago had a theology of prenatal sin? They said that you can sin in the womb, in the fetal stage, and all the way back to the embryonic stage. So I don't know what they do when a child kicks in the womb. Maybe they think, see, rebellion. (laughs) They taught that. Also, if Jews lived in areas where Greeks populated it, called Hellenistic Jews they would have around them the philosophy of the Greek world which believed in the pre-existence of the soul. And the Greeks actually taught, and maybe it was influenced into some of the Jews' thinking, that the soul could do something that was sinful and you would mete out the consequences of that in the body in which the soul would inhabit. But they asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is born blind? Maybe, the disciples thought, maybe it was something his parents did that caused the child to be blind. Now, that's, that's a pretty, that's a low blow, isn't it? When you have a child with a malady and you come along and you say, well, you did something wrong because it's your sin that caused your child to be like this. However, again, 2,000 years ago, that was part of the belief system. Some of the Jews took a familiar portion of Scripture and twisted it. When I quote the Scripture, you'll recognize it. This is how they twisted it. The Scripture is Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Some of them twisted that to mean that if you as a parent sin, your child will have bad things happen to it. Well, that is not at all the context of that passage. God in that passage, Exodus 20, is speaking not personally, but nationally. If you nationally do these things, then nationally these things are going to happen. And it did. The Babylonian captivity and other such examples show the meaning of that. But these disciples had that background of belief system of either prenatal sin or the parents did something that caused these things to happen. A wrong view. Now, I need to say that sometimes suffering is a direct result of sin or stupidity, errant thinking, errant activity. For instance, a child, if born of promiscuous parents who contracted a venereal disease, those effects can be meted out in the child's future. If the child is the parents of an alcoholic, There are certain things that can occur as well there. But you can't always tie 
suffering to sin. Now, there is a false theology that has been very prevalent, the prosperity doctrine, that says basically, yes, there is evil, yes, there is sin, yeah, there's a lot of suffering, but if you're a child of God, hallelujah, you don't have to experience it. You can drive a Lamborghini and not a neon. You can always be healthy and wealthy and wise. That's the thinking behind it. Now, all of that theology aside, there is thinking even among some believers that I have spoken to that when something bad happens, it's like it's probably because of something I did earlier. Like perhaps the traffic ticket in the afternoon is because I didn't have my devotions in the morning. God's getting back at me because of it. It's a wrong way of thinking. Don't assume when people are suffering that they have done something wrong automatically. And the best case study of that is Job himself. Right? Remember his friends came to him and tried to pin this same explanation on him? Well, Job, um, your kids are dead. Your wife's mad at you. You're like losing your health. You must be some kind of bad sinner. Problem with that is God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him in the earth. He's the best I've got. He's the most righteous one there is. So that's not a good explanation, but that is their explanation. Sin. Now since we're dealing with it, think of a few more explanations people have for the origin of evil. The most common one that unbelievers have whenever they see evil or suffering or pain is this. It's the... There must not be a God then, explanation. Here's their thinking. It's usually stated in the form of a syllogism, a series of logical steps. If you're in a philosophy class, it goes like this. The biblical God is all-loving. The biblical God is all-knowing. The biblical God is all-powerful. But massive evil exists in the world. Therefore, the biblical God cannot exist. Well, there's a problem in that kind of thinking and that kind of statement. As soon as you say there's so much evil, it presupposes you have a notion of ultimate good. That's the problem with it. You see, if in a classroom one student gets a 90% on the test and another gets a 60 and another gets a 40, it presupposes there's a real standard of what? 100%. So... If there's no God, then where did we ever get a standard of goodness by which to measure what is evil? As C.S. Lewis brilliantly put it, if the world is so bad and the universe is so bad, how did people ever come to attribute it to a good and loving God? Now there's another explanation of evil, and I don't have time to get into them all, but it's sort of a cross between the two. One includes God a little bit and throws out the rest of it. And it's this notion. There is a God, and He'd like to help, but He can't. He can't. He'd like to help, but He can't. It's the deist position. Acknowledges God, and part of that is even in a realm of theology called process theology. Have you heard of process theology? Process theology says that God is in the process of becoming a better God. He's not really capable of handling all the evil in the world, but every year and every generation and every war and every bad thing that happens, and it's all good because God is learning from it. 
And he'll get it one day. He just needs to learn a little while longer. Process theology. Well, not only is that not a God that is a biblical God at all, but that is not a God worth believing in at all. It's like having a big brother who can't do anything when you need him to help. So now what I want you to notice how, how Jesus doesn't deal with the philosophical problem of evil. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, he's not saying he's sinless and his parents are sinless. What he's saying is that is not the issue here. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. He's pushing their whole argument of sin and suffering aside and saying, you can't always equate sin and suffering directly. And that's really not the point. The point is, I have a plan. Watch. That's what he is saying here. He is in effect saying, this man here is a miracle waiting to happen. And his whole life he has been blind, but it has been worth it because he's going to reveal the glory of God. He's going to be healed physically. He'll be able to see, but it's going to be a miracle that attests to who Jesus is. And this man's going to see Jesus face to face. But that he might reveal the glory of God. Here's the point I want to make. God may allow suffering in your life to affect a greater purpose. Here's a man who is suffering. God's going to affect a greater purpose. God might allow sin, um, suffering in your life to affect a greater purpose. And I know you're thinking, Skip, I've heard that all my life. I'm tired of hearing, God has some purpose in this. God has some greater plan. It's true. It's true. You say, what, what possibly could be a greater plan in my suffering? Well, I could write a list, but I'll give you just three. Number one, suffering will equip you. It will equip you. You know, you're not able to talk to a suffering person very well unless you have suffered. When you have gone through your own pain and problems and worked through it, especially victoriously, you are such an asset. That is why focus groups or gatherings, support groups are so popular and so powerful because when you get people together with like experiences and they feed off of one another and minister to one another, it's wonderful. Paul the Apostle put it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our trouble so that we can be a comfort to those who are in any trouble with the same comfort we have received from him. It equips you. The second thing suffering will do is it will strengthen you. It will strengthen your faith. I'm speaking to people right now who, if I were to interview you, you would say something like this. This is a hard time of my life. This is so hard. But the Bible is so alive to me right now. And Jesus has never been closer than he is now. And your faith is being stretched and you're growing in your faith. Now, I want to make a statement. I want you to listen very carefully to it. Faith is more valuable than health. Faith is more valuable than health. Let Paul the Apostle tell you. He went through a period of physical pain, and he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember what he said? He said, 
There's a thorn in the flesh, literally a stake, an impaling rod, a physical ailment of some kind that he suffered. A thorn in the flesh has been given me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. He said, I prayed about it three times. And God came, and you know what God said to him? He said, my grace is enough for you. My grace is enough. In fact, my strength will overcome your weakness. So you know what Paul said at the end of that? He said, well, if that's the case, then I will gladly rejoice in my infirmities that the power of Christ may be upon me. It equips you and it strengthens you. No wonder James said, count it all joy. If there's any joy at all in suffering, it's that joy. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Faith is more valuable than health. So it'll equip you, it'll strengthen you, and third, it'll correct you. If you're getting off the path a little bit, there's nothing like a wake-up call from pain. Every parent knows what this is. It's called a spanking. If you love your children at all, you have spanked them in their life because it, it, it works miracles. A good spanking is like the best attitude adjustment. I'm not saying go out now and spank your kids. But you know, God does that. The Bible calls it discipline or more particularly chastisement. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, Hebrews says. God is doing, he he gets our attention. David wrote in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now there's something implicit in that statement. As if to say, you know, I'm sort of walking on the edge and getting a little farther and farther away from God. And then, bam, I'm back. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It corrects us. Again, C.S. Lewis brilliantly put it this way. Pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. So powerful. So suffering provokes questions. Suffering defies explanations. Third, I want you to notice in verse 4 and onward, suffering brings obligations. Now watch what Jesus does. doesn't even enter an argument of philosophy and theology. He's going to do something very practical. He says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. Interesting. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Ooh. It's a good thing he was blind. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. This is what I'd like you to notice. To Jesus Christ, this man was not some theological case study. It wasn't some philosophical argument about the reason of evil and pain in the world. He was a man who was blind, who needed help. And it's like Jesus rolling up his sleeves. And says, I'm going to get to work. There's a few things I want you to notice about what we just read. First of all, Jesus was sensitive. Jesus was sensitive. Who's the first guy that saw the man? 
Verse 1, Jesus. I mean, they're all, they're all going out of the temple because they wanted to stone Jesus. The crowd did. They're going out of the temple. Their nerves are raw. But the first one that noticed him was Jesus. The disciples had the questions. Jesus noticed them. That's Jesus. Always sensitive. Always aware. Always aware of needs. Even in Galilee, when a crowd of people gathered, and most people go, look at how many people I got coming today to my crowd gathering up here. Jesus saw that they were like sheep having no shepherd. They were broken hearted. And that kind of sensitivity pervaded his ministry. There's something that you and I face today as Americans in this modern era. It's called compassion fatigue. Because we do watch television and we see all of the images of pain and suffering and war every single night, on and on, it puts a little bit of a callus. It is a phenomenon known as compassion fatigue. Just be aware of it. Guard against it. Pray against it. Jesus noticed he was sensitive. Notice also he was practical. Look what Jesus says. I must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. Didn't get involved in a theological debate. I'm not going to get into an argument about sin and suffering. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get to work. Now, many translations don't say I must work. They say we must work. We're reading off the Textus Receptus, basically those manuscript derivations. That's what we have in our hand. But many manuscripts that are newer don't say I must work, but we must work the works of him who sent me. I love that. That Jesus is saying we... Let's us gather and get together and do this work because the time is coming when no man can work. So he was practical. We must work. Let's get to work. Also notice he was urgent. He said, I must work the works or we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. In other words, we have a limited time to serve the Lord. Jesus calls it while, while, while it is day. Within six months, Jesus will be crucified. He has a few more months to put everything into the mission his father sent him on. But what does that say to us? That you and I have a while. I don't know how long your while is or my while is, but while it is day and while we're on earth, let's push aside Every selfish distraction and ambition for our money or our fame or our happiness and say, we have this time to serve the Lord. Let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. That's really a strong and powerful message Jesus is giving. While it is day. I've said it before. I think it bears repeating. In heaven, you'll never pass out a single gospel tract. In heaven, you'll never pray for somebody who's sick because there's no sick people. In heaven, you'll never wipe away one tear of compassion. No need to. No tears in heaven. The only time we have to do His work and show His compassion is now. Right here. Right now. That's our while we're on earth. So how does a Christian deal with the problem of pain much more than theologically, much more than academically, much more than philosophically? Even as the unbelievers have their little syllogism, their series of logical remarks, we have our own 
Let me state it for you. The biblical God is loving. The biblical God is all-knowing. The biblical God is all-powerful. And yet we acknowledge that massive evil exists in our world. Therefore, we know that Jesus will one day return to this earth and judge all sin and make all bad things right. And, and, until he does, I will help alleviate that suffering and pain and thus represent Jesus Christ to a suffering world. That is a Christian biblical worldview of pain and suffering. And it is seen here in our text. Something else. He was not only sensitive and practical and urgent, he was personal. There's nothing more personal than getting your own spit involved in the mud and touching a man, touching, touching a blind man, touching a beggar. I don't know how he smelled or how he looked, but Jesus touched him. Now there's, believe it or not, pages of perhaps explanations of why Jesus made mud. We're not told why he made mud. Maybe he was hearkening back to Genesis 2 when God formed man out of the dust of the earth and for the creator of the earth in human flesh to make a couple of eyes. Not a big deal. He made everything else. Just like, watch that. He made mud because he wanted to make mud. But he touched him. He touched him. Why did he do that? Because he didn't have to. Did Jesus have to touch anybody he healed? Could he have waved a magic wand? Be healed! In fact, couldn't have Jesus have, have healed anyone he wanted to in mass? I mean, maybe he would have been organized about it and say, okay, uh, we'll put lepers over here, congenital anomalies over here and birth defects. We'll put, to, um, we'll put leprosy over here and just all of you get together. Now watch this. Healed! One big fell swoop. He didn't do that. He touched. He touched. It was personal. Why did he do that? One author says, Jesus' mission was not primarily a crusade against disease, but a ministry to individual people, some of whom happened to have a disease. He wanted those people, one by one, to feel his love. For Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching. The grasp of a hand, the embrace of the arms, the eye-to-eye contact, the personal involvement goes so much and so far in showing compassion. So two questions I leave with you before we move on and finish this. Number one, are you willing to embrace suffering if it drives you to God? If suffering drives you to God, are you willing to embrace it? Are you willing to embrace suffering if it drives you to God? Question number two, are you willing to alleviate suffering if it drives others to God? Well, finally, let's finish this out in verse 8 and downward. And here's the fourth reality that suffering does. Suffering challenges expectations. Verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, well, he's like him. He said, I am him. I am he. Therefore, he, they said to him, how were your eyes open? 
He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received sight. And then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Isn't it it amazing the simplicity with which Jesus did this? He saw a blind man. He says, it's time to work. He made clay, put it in his eyes. You know, there was no musical prelude. And now Jesus, and then the angels, and then be healed. Just simply healed, and the guy got healed. Very, very understated. What I'd like you to see is notice the mixture in this paragraph of wonder, confusion, bewilderment, skepticism, disbelief, all rolled into one. Why? Because they'd never seen anything like this before. This guy was a blind beggar. This transformation was so shocking. So shocking that they found it easier to believe this is just a case of mistaken identity. He must look a lot like him. He goes, no, I'm he. I'm the guy. Then to believe it was a bona fide healing. Here's my point. No one in that group expected the beggar to ever be anything else but a blind beggar. And my principle is this. Suffering lessens your expectation that life will ever be any better than this. It wears on you. And it lessens and lowers the expectation that life will ever be any better than it is now. Well, it's true, for some, God may call them to prolonged suffering. Paul the Apostle would say, I'm one of those guys, God called me to this, I prayed about it a long time, three times, God finally said it's enough, so I rejoice in this. But, having said that, never let your expectations limit God. That's unbelief. That is unbelief. Psalm 78 recounts the children of Israel wandering through the desert and God's plan. But there's a, there's a very worrisome verse in Psalm 78. This is what it says. Listen carefully. And they limited the Holy One of Israel. Did you get that? The children of Israel wandering through the desert limited the Holy One of Israel. Now I've got a question for you. How do you limit the unlimited God? Well, unbelief will do it. Unbelief will do it. Mark said Jesus was going through one of the towns in Israel. And the Bible says in that gospel passage, He could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Now, some of you can relate to this man and his friends around him in verses 8 through 12 because you came to Christ and nobody could believe you could ever change. Just like this man, they said, no, you know what, mistaken identity, this this isn't the guy. Because they thought he'd never change. And do you remember, some of you came to Jesus and you were so excited and you told your friends and the family, go, oh, look, you, you, you can't pull one over on us. We know you. We know what you do and what you've done. You can't change. What a beautiful picture this is of salvation. A man blind, totally hopeless, unable to see, lacking the capacity to see, and hopeless unless 
Jesus were to seek him out and give him sight. Wasn't that your condition? Blinded by sin? Unable to see the truth of God? Unable to see the truth of life? Unable to see the truth of Christ? Were it not for Jesus opening our eyes, we would still be in darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul writes, The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. One final note and I close. Something about physical healing. All healings are temporary. Every single person that gets healed will eventually do what? Die. They're all temporary. So if you get healed of lung cancer, hallelujah, but you'll die of something else. That's reality. That's the bottom line. However, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, what happens is the spiritual transformation right now where you become a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Guaranteed heaven and eternal life with that and and a physical transformation when he comes back. On resurrection day. So like that little boy who asked God. The Bible says you give us everything we want. How come we don't have everything? You will. You will have everything. On that day. Some of you are on a hard road right now. And you're thinking this is so tough. And this month has been so hard. And this year has been so desperate. You know where that road leads? Home. It leads home. Don't despise the road when it leads home. You'll end up at home in your father's house. If, on the other hand, you're here today and God is sort of an interesting concept. Life is good for you. No, I'm not experiencing any bad problems or health. Life is good. I'm going to have no trial. In fact, my financial portfolio is really strong right now and my health is really good. Wonderful. But you're like all those people sitting on lounge chairs on the Titanic That ship is going down and you're just having a great time until that happens. Here's my counsel. Here's my counsel. If you don't have a personal relationship this morning with the Lord Jesus Christ, you can see he wants to touch you and make you better. This blind man, healed of blindness, will by the end of the chapter have a healing in his soul. He'll meet Christ. The best of both worlds. Able to see and set for eternity. God wants to open your eyes today. Maybe He has started to do that and you're feeling Him drawing you, but you've never personally received Christ. I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. Let's pray together. Let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clear revelation of your word that is so pure and right and resonates deep in our hearts. We thank you for not only its clarifying ability, but its ability to get us back on the track of truth and righteousness. And for some, Lord, you've awakened something within them. You've awakened a hope. It's because you're drawing them to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that that some would make a decision, like the blind man who had to go down to the pool of Siloam in obedience. I pray that that would be followed up here, right now, with those walking forward to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. In His name we pray.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.